Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Regenerative by Design podcast. And I'm really glad you're joining us today because we're going to be talking to Trip Wall, who has not only a fascinating background in his experiences through life from education and professional experiences, but also a huge focus on conservation and all things having to do with protecting the natural world. So Trip, welcome to the show. Oh, Joni, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a very exciting topic. I love talking about it. Absolutely. Me too. I, I have a feeling we could eat up a an hour or two rather easily. So um, today we are going to be really focused on water. And for those of you who are joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast series, you'll find that we are spending different um, different recordings that will be clustered around certain topics. And this is the first of three that will be dedicated to water. And, you know, anybody who is existing on our planet knows how important water is, but especially those of us who are involved with resources, um, agriculture, food production, et cetera, and politics, you, you realize that water plays a much more dynamic role than most people realize. So we're going to talk about that today. But first to get started, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about you and your background. Um, what did you do growing up? Where did you grow up? So I, uh, I grew up in Colorado, so born and raised. I'm a, I'm a Colorado native. Uh, and so, you know, water has been kind of part of my purview um, since then, because we give all of our continental divide water to the nine Western states. And, and that's a, that's an issue. Correct. Yeah. And did you grow up in Denver or did you grow up in the countryside? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, so I did. I grew up in Denver, um, and but but had a family lineage that was in the South. It was really a timber and uh, and cattle operation. So had had ag in my world, um, but really was was born in, in the Front Range area. Mm-hmm. Beautiful country. And what did you study in college? You actually have some very fascinating topics of interest with your you know studies in college and. One of them is axiology, and I think this is one that the majority of people I know probably don't know what that means. Could you tell us a little bit about it and why you studied it? You bet. So I was a I was a finance and philosophy major at the University of Colorado, um, and had a real deep passion for uh, both phenomenology and axiology, which which I ended up putting most of my efforts into. And I'll, I'll tell you how that was sort of a path into to regenerative thinking for me. Um, but really, axiology is, is the study of, of meanings and values. Um, and so it's really understanding the, the ethics and morals of how we, you know, interact or, or interact with, with everything, you know, and for me, that's, that's the water, that's the planet, um, you know, that's the animals. 
And so, you know, it was, a, it was a profound and sort of intellectual look at how do we think about, you know, the ethics of, for instance, spending our money. You know, we vote three times a day in the food system. Uh, and how cognizant are we about where we're putting those bets and what we're saying about our ethics and our moral values when we do that? I think the same thing applies, obviously, to the water space as mm-hmm. water is, is fundamental to everything. I mean, obviously, we all know we're made of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with there is a core fundament, you know, nothing else matters. Um, and so... I think it's a great place to anchor, especially as we think about human and planetary health. Absolutely. And I, I love the concept of actually thinking about assignment of value just as its own focus and topic. And I think it's something that people often don't pause to really even think about that value assignment uh, is actually the the number one driver of all things that that have a, a, a negative consequence on our planet. Like you look at waste, you look at resource extraction that's done in a in a way that's destructive. A lot of times it's it's a failure to assign value to parts of those processes that need to actually be valued um, in a new, different way, not looked at as a waste product or looked at as like a negative consequence. Like how can we reassign value and add value stream purpose to different parts of the puzzle? And I think regenerative is a really important part of um, kind of a metamorphosis culturally where we're starting to look at it from a holistic model. So when you were in school, you were you were pretty dedicated to working in the finance industry when you got out. That was what you wanted to do as a profession? I had a couple of different, no, actually, um, I, I initially uh, wanted to be a professor in, in philosophy and thought probably I was going to do um, environmental legal um, and so did go down the LSAT path and, and that road and then, and then really decided that, um, I got an opportunity in finance and just sort of went that way. And so, you know, I spent a long time in both ESG and al- alternative asset management and sort of investing across a variety of asset classes, institutional, um, and private. And it really helped inform, you know, what I wanted to do later on because, you know, I was, I was kind of having all of these disparate pieces in my world. I was spending summers on our, our agricultural properties doing things. I'm, I'm an outdoors guy, so I love to fish and hike and ski um, and, and realized, you know, from my forefathers, the, the importance of conservation and the interconnectivity of everything we do and how we impact the land. And so, um, so I, but I did go into finance. I had a finance uh, degree and wanted to, at that point, figure out sort of a, a new way of thinking about capitalism uh, and investing. And I learned a lot in that system. And it also led me to you know, want to take those skill sets and the acumen I learned to really bring it to bear in, a, in an asset class of, of regenerative food and ag that you know, didn't have sophistication and didn't have sort of institutional capital and inflows to the magnitude of which we need um, and so it was a stepping stone for me. Right. That uh, That's a great story because I know so many, so many people who are very passionate about certain topics. They're passionate about agriculture or conservation or the various um, 
you know, facets that, that make us have an appreciation of the natural world, but they often have a kind of a phobia or a neglect of finance and how the business model can be created in a way that can positively impact all of these things instead of having it be like an us and them camp of like, oh, there's finance over here and they're inherently bad because they're capitalists. And I know people who fall into that mindset all the time. And I, I, I am always very inspired by people who are like, how can we make finance and the financial drivers and the capitalistic society better and have intentional impact on the systems that we want to see flourishing. Well, and that's why you can sort of hear how that all came together for me, because I really decided that, you know, just sort of avaricious capital, right? Capitalism only, you know, looking at net profits was, you know, not looking at proper and thinking about the ethics and the interconnectivity of everything. So that's right. where I really brought axiology to bear with, you know, that step of my life with the financial chops to create Trailhead, you know, as a B Corp, mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a group, a long duration mandate um, that can be patient capital for the right, you know, apex of value for our, for our founders and entrepreneurs um, and, and importing on our social and environmental impacts to try to change what, you know, finance or certainly venture capital is, is thought of mm -hmm. and how it can be really an instrument of change and good within, you know, these really nascent asset classes that need right. risk takers. Yeah, absolutely. And again, because, you know, none of these things will come to fruition without a capital infusion and often at the venture level. And so it's so critical. And I think people need to realize how important it is that we are developing that kind of a, a culture in the finance world and in the venture capital world that does look at the concept of value being beyond just ROI on a PL, you know, just purely financial. Because what we're learning too is impact companies, B Corps tend to perform really well financially, but then also have other additional, you know, positivity points and ESG reporting points and and we're finding that there's actually a really positive financial model associated with these companies. Absolutely. And I think that's what brings sort of the third leg uh, of my story together, because I had in the background of working at Alliance Bernstein in the finance space, I have been the president and chairman of Colorado Wildlife Foundation for the last 16 years. Um, and then I sit on the governor's Western States Water partnership and have done that as president and chairman for the last, I think, 15 years. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I revere the nonprofit world and, and philanthropic venture. Um, but that said, it was glacial for me. And, and maybe it's my ADD, um, but I wanted things to be more catalytic. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we urgency yeah. to make things happen at large scale. And so I really I still am in, in those positions in the nonprofit world, but part of the genesis of, of Trailhead was trying to say, we have identified some things that need to be done and they need to be combined with private capital for that catalytic um, path. Right. And so I think there's a place, but, but I think the triple bottom line and understanding that, and you said it very well, Joni, you know, you can't, you can't do impactful things if you're not making money. And right. so I think you have to, the model that can then be accretive to do impactful things. And, and that's how we look at the world at Trailhead. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so refreshing to have this conversation. And every time I hear you speak, Trip, I get the same 
um, excitement of hearing what you're talking about because I just see it every day in my working life too. And I look around and I have also been a part of some really fantastic nonprofits that have done incredible things, but we've always had our hands tied in that we're a nonprofit. We actually can't go make anything tangible or do anything that would turn revenue, which sometimes seems weird because there's ideas and your hands are somewhat tied because of the nature of being a 501c3. And and there's certainly a, a space for those types of entities. But I know in my conservation, you know, board time um, with these organizations, we got to a point where we needed a driver. We needed something that was out proactively being, um, you know, more on this, the for-profit side in the name of what the the legacy of that foundation was. And Sactivist definitely grew out of, of that kind of yearning. Like we need to go out and actually do something that consumers can hold on to and have it be tangible. And it's it's a it's a quickly evolving space right now. And I'm sure you're seeing that right now too. Regenerative is suddenly being commonly addressed in popular media. Soil health is being popular in like at the Daily Show, I think last week they talked about soil health. And that's an exciting thing. So regenerative for many people is like, I think we take it for granted that we understand what it is. There's still a huge part of the population that don't understand and have never heard the word regenerative as applied to agriculture or food systems or even finance. And how did you get introduced to the concept of regenerative systems? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a seminal question for me because I, it, this takes me back to my philosophy days and Rudolf Steiner. Um, and so I was sort of I was a Steinerian in terms of really fascinated with a few concepts that he came up with. So anthroposophic medicine, so father of anthroposophic medicine, which is you know a, a botanical based um, alt pharma, if you will, in the in the early eighteen hundreds. Um, he came up with biodynamics, which you know we certainly know through Demeter. Um, and, the, and the European certification, but again, a, a regenerative type uh, farming methodology that took root uh, in, in Europe uh, and, and around the rest of the world. We, we have some of it here in the U.S. too, but um, it's a little bit less known and was a little bit subjugated by the organic movement. Uh, and then Rudolf Steiner was also, you know, came up with the pedagogical theory of Waldorf uh, and Waldorf School, where all my children went. It was a very unique education system. Okay, so studying Rudolf Steiner really got me understanding and reading about uh, biodynamics as it pertained to food system and agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so with my background, very interesting to me, partly because I always saw the cognitive dissonance, you know, in my forefathers when they had to do something that was, you know, a a covenant of the system, let's call it a financing covenant an insurance covenant. So I'm talking about spraying fungicides, I'm talking about inculcating or inoculating um, animals in the husbandry space, you know, things that that I thought we could always do better. So when I stumbled upon Rudolf Stein, realized, you know, there's actually a tried and true method here. And we don't have to be reliant on the petrochemical industry. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be on just the basic understanding at the soil level of just chemistry, which is just a really thin slice of the way we should think about the world because it's really biological. Right. Um, and so under that in a more exhaustive sense, I thought was was really fascinating. And so a long-winded answer of saying, Journey, that's how I was sort of turned on to regenerative. And then mm-hmm. really because I was, uh, you know, a an, an athlete and a cyclist, I cared about the human nutrition piece of it um, and having children 
um, you know, I really care deeply about what, what I put into their body. And so, you know, my wife and I for, you know, the last 25 years have, have had our own animals, have had our own, you know, half acre garden, um, try to produce and eat as much of the food for ourselves that we can, and then supplementing only with, you know, very thoughtful, curated, you know, beyond organic, uh, other inputs. And so, you know, it's been part of the lifestyle for me for a very long time. I think then just to round that out, you probably know, I, I was part of the ownership group of a, a pretty influential and, and seminal uh, organic grocery chain uh, that was called Alfalfa's that was ended up being bought by Whole Foods. Um, but we really were, we were really bent on making sure that we had local procurement, that we had organic or beyond organic, and that we were creating a living wage, cutting out that middleman for the stewards, you know, of the lands and, and the producers of this food who have been taking a shrinking share of that, that income with all the risk. And so it's been an evolving um, understanding of what regenerative is for me. And it still continues to evolve as I, I begin to include oceans and waterways and atmospherics in my thinking writ large. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's static, but I think that's a lot of how I'd see and got involved with regenerative. Yeah, no, that's a great story. And I love how there's this connection piece with so many people I know who are thinking in this larger kind of holism model. And frequently they've either grown up farming, ranching with real hands-on, um, you know, tactile experiences in their childhood or people who have just really spent a lot of time in their garden and watching and the powers of observation. And it's pretty powerful what nature can teach you when you allow it to work in its more natural way. It's like biology drives chemistry. And for many years, we've had this reductionistic thinking model that chemistry controls biology, but we're being schooled right now by nature um, that that isn't the case. And there are many, many examples that are so demonstrative, like, you know, um, pesticide resistant pests and herbicide resistant weeds and things that we thought, oh, well, surely we can conquer them with chemistry. But we're starting to realize that biology will always prevail. And um, and I and I feel like this overlay of the mindset of how we look at it, and there is a Rudolf Steiner kind of overview of this holism, intentional holism piece that I think as we overlay that on different industries, we'll see industries actually gaining in efficiencies um, by working with nature rather than trying to control and subjugate nature. And I, I'm really excited for the future in that way. I think it's going to be a renaissance. <laughs> no, I think you're spot on. And, and I think, you know, again, the, the hubris of, of us think that we could over-engineer nature, um, you know, is something that we try to keep in check at all times because I think being able to enable and expedite certain processes with technology is really important. And at the same time, having a humility and really having a true north of, of sort of biomimicry um, for us is, is super important. Um, and I go back and look at and think about, you know, when we when we put people on the moon, we all of a sudden thought, well, we certainly can, you know, engineer a, a food for our children that is superior uh, than breast milk. Um, you know, I think now we know what a, what a hubristic idea that was. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think if we start back and look at, you know, human maladies outpacing population growth, you know, we can look at that hubris, we can look at the petrochemical complex, and we can think about the things that we've done wrong and make changes. And I think that's what we're sort of endeavoring to do. Yeah, no, I love it. You, you probably talked to some of the most um, forward thinking people 
um, on our planet every day when you're when you're vetting business opportunities that are working in the regenerative space. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with regenerative food systems and um, the regenerative agricultural movement, it actually goes beyond just farming. And I think a lot of people aren't completely in tune with that either. There's ecosystem services, there's the technology that helps monitor and process data and additionality, there's carbon, There's there are so many facets. And it's really like its own evolving ecosystem that stems from this soil focus at an agricultural level. And, and that's really exciting. But often I do find that water and discussions about water as its own you know, kind of, you know, end point and start point. It, 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 it's, I feel like it's often been neglected. And that's why I was like, when I have this podcast, we are going to dedicate at least three to just strictly evaluating water and the role of water. And I think for people who um, work in regenerative, you, you know, we're very, very aware that surface water, groundwater, water cycles, both big and small play such a big role. And now with, uh, climate change and prolonged drought in the Southwest. Um, you know, what we've been experiencing here in Idaho, even with, with water cycles, it's very alarming. And I think it's, it makes us aware that we're going to have to really take a hard look at water and what our relationship with water is because it's, it's not going to last forever. And I think that's something that for decades we just assumed would never change. Water had an infinite kind of a feel to it. And now we're hitting a wall. So, you in Colorado, I think you have a very unique, um, close and personal relationship with the scarcity piece of surface water, like you mentioned, the Colorado River, but even the aquifers. I have a, a friend here who grew up ranching and farming in Idaho, or excuse me, he lives here in Idaho, but he grew up in Colorado down near the New Mexico border. And there is a phenomenal aquifer down there, and I don't recall the name of it, but it used to be artisanal, like you'd put in a well and it would just gush. And now, decades later, they're actually having to tie multiple wells together just to have enough pump to support irrigating a field. And it's a it's something that he says that really haunts his his father and his grandfather because they didn't think they'd ever see that happen. If you could speak to to those topics at large, so yeah, take it away, Trip. Yeah, so I mean, lots to think about there. And so I guess where I start in in thinking about this process, and I think you're point about the aquifer is so salient because you know if we don't measure we can't manage and so i start there with trying to understand and measure both subsurface surface and atmospheric water mm-hmm. all right and so we all the wildlife foundation in western states water we have a, a partnership uh with with noaa um, UCAR and NCAR, and those groups, along with Senator Shelby's Tuscaloosa Weather um, Center, are trying to create what's called a hydroflow map, and it's all water on Earth in those three stratas. Wow. And so, you know, what's really historically unfortunate is a confluence of two things, of, of not understanding how much water we had so that we could conserve and manage that usage, and then policies actually at the federal water level that would encourage wasting or use it or lose it type scenarios. And so the, the confluence of those two things have really put us in, you know, an incredible, an incredible urge. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I, I, 15 years, I think that's what you said that you have been working with Western States Water. That is a long time. Um, thank you for your work there. You've done this long enough where I feel like you've seen the longevity of of trends changing, 
policy changing, climate changing. It gives you a really unique perspective, um, I think, compared to people who are really new to it. Um, what do you think that, you know, what to you, if we could do one thing tomorrow to impact this, what would it be when it comes to management of water? So question. I guess I'm going to little trip down history lane, I would say. So in the early 1900s, we did a, a, um, a study, basically, of the upper and lower basins on the Colorado River to try to find out how much water we had. Uh, we, we ascertained that we had 18 million acre feet um, at that time. And so we began to then send that continental div divide water uh, westward to the nine uh, compact states, which were then um, using that water for development, mostly agriculture, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. um, for cities of Phoenix, of California, the Central Valley. So, unfortunately, now we know with hydroarchaeology that we decided to pick a an, an outlier of a year in terms of the basin water levels. Oh. And so that actually, uh, 14 million acre feet, about a delta of 4 million acre feet a year was what was the the annual average. So for almost 100 years, we've been sending about 4 million acre feet. And, and it, it gets a little more complicated than this and more because of our holding capacity in Colorado mm -hmm. down states. Mm. And so that's water you can't ever get back, obviously. And so right now, the, the nine state water compacts are being renegotiated mm -hmm. and in the next five years, a new outlay. One of my problems with this entire system is that, you know, we have Native American tribes along the Colorado River Basin with historical water rights, which have have, been, have lost access. And so for me, you know, the water water issue also touches, you know, a regenerative social justice issue mm -hmm. uh, because those are do and owing the water that we granted them uh, when we made certain deals uh, with land transfers. Right. And so for me, thinking about and understanding in a, in, a, in a system of justice, who should be the stakeholders along the Colorado water system and in that nine state water compact, along with measuring so we can accurately actually know how much water we have, mm -hmm. along with that says things like, um, we don't have to use it or lose it. And so I'll go into that in just a second. So right now, if you're an alfalfa farmer in Colorado and you've got a, you've got a water share and you use half of that water share to um, water your alfalfa and, and it's fine, you can't transfer gift or, you know, give to your next generation, sell that water right unless you use all of it for that year. So wow. that farmer is now go ahead and go ahead and release the other half of his water right to, to flood that alfalfa field or he can't monetize it subsequently so you can I see the not know that that's crazy that's the federal wow. water system and so that's broken wow and you know done some creative things here in colorado to start mitigating that one of them is is after the big thompson uh floods there was sort of a if you can think about an HOA structure placed on top of these water rights to allow them to trade acre feet amongst this sort of community of membership. And so they're now in that, in the, in the uh, big Thompson water cooperative, there is now a, you know, a fungible uh, acre foot unit that you can sell and not have to use all of, all of the water. There's also another 
idea with ATM, um, which can be an alternative transfer mechanism or tag to municipal, it's also known as, which can say, I can give the city of Denver a piece of my water share for an outside hedge for a drought year. They're going to pay me a piece of income for allowing them to have that hedge, which is in essence a consumptive use of my water. So I get mm. to keep my entire it. I have an income stream for not using the water instead right. of having to necessarily, and it creates a virtuous circle for the conservation and development for these municipalities. So there's creative ways of getting around that. And I think, at least for me, both at Colorado Wildlife and Western States Water, we're working on multiple angles there, both by placing radars in gap areas so that we can understand what the water and, and hydro flows look like, mm-hmm. and then working on Colorado and at the federal level to try to lobby um, to get some of these user lose it laws changed. Yeah. I really, I'm honestly, you're blowing my mind right now because I did not realize that that's how it was done. Like you learn, I knew I'd learned a lot today, but um, that actually is something that will change the way I think and process moving forward. And again, it's that concept of like where you're putting your value. Like I don't understand why a system would be set up to reward um, non-judicious use of a resource. It's kind of hard for me to understand like whatever, whatever thinking process put that in place in the first place. But now to change it, I mean, that's, that's a big challenge because you can't change federal um, rules and regulations like that very easily. That's, I applaud you guys for working on that. And, you know, talking about that Colorado water access, do you know what the current stats are for like what percentage of that is going to agriculture versus to supporting like suburban and urban needs like i know golf courses and car washing gets usually the blame for the water use but it's my understanding that it's 80 percent that goes to agriculture yeah i I don't know the exact figure but i would tell you i I know that it's over three quarters of the usage Mm -hmm. is dedicated to animal and and permanent crops take a uh, an outsized share of that okay um i mean it's hundreds of gallons of water to produce a single almond um you know so there are there are there's a lot of lobby, as you well know, in the in the conventional ag world uh, that would like to obfuscate that data on one water usage because mm-hmm. the tie both to contamination in the waterways and to excessive usage, unnecessary usage in food and ag, you know, for us is a huge red flag. Right, right. Yeah, it's something that is a big wake up call for everybody. And I know you know, you mentioned biomimicry and biomimicry is something that I've been really focused on from like an agroecological perspective of how do we actually shift our, you know, agricultural lands to have this inherent biomimicry feel like how do we plant certain crops in areas where it would naturally be able to survive without heavy artificial irrigation or other like really, you know, intensive energy and resource intensive interventions. And you look at what is growing around, like, let's just look at the plants, not the livestock for a moment. Um, It's interesting that because of the sun and the access to all that sunshine, we've planted so many crops that really are not suited for desert conditions. And it's set us up for a major, major disaster. Um, With the Colorado River being in its, you know, I don't know how many years it's been, but I, I look at what's happening at 
you know, the reservoirs, you know, Glen Canyon and those ones, and they, they seem like they're just barely moving at a trickle. What is that going to mean for farmers this year? Well, I think you've already heard in, you know, in Central Valley and Walking Valley in California, you have, you have stakeholders with water rights and there's no water. Um, and so what that means is, you know, you're going to be following that land for this year because or, or um, you're changing, you know, the, the rotation um, to find a, a lower water footprint um, cash crop that you can that you can plant. Now the problem there, and, and we're certainly trying to invest and think about things in this exact area, is many times you know USDA crop insurance, uh, the financing mechanisms are, are are they have covenants in and around what things that you can grow and still be insured by, and so we we've set up again a policy system in, in terms of food and ag that is, is truncating the biodiversity and causing an issue for that particular farmer who might want to go plant Kernza or quinoa, something that could have a lower water footprint, uh, but can't get insured or the financing for it because the markets, the spot prices, the, the downstream uh, offtake is not, is not very clear. Yeah, that's and something. So yeah, like that's that a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's something we've been running into. Um, I mean, we, we, my company works with crops that are, you know, a solution to these water restriction, um, phenomenons, um, you know, mostly tefts and millets and sorghums, things that, and quinoas, things that can really grow under tremendous drought pressure and still perform and produce yield. But what we've found, um, reaching out to some of these farmers who are wanting to plant them that they would lose their crop insurance because it violates like some little tiny statute somewhere that says you're not allowed to plant proso millet ever. And it will disqualify your whole crop insurance for everything. And so there's like these weird little nuances that need to be tackled from a policy perspective. Um, Also access to value added processing, which is always an issue in certain areas that just haven't had that kind of agricultural infrastructure. They're really set up to just process like almonds or avocados or the things that have been bringing in the cash revenue stream. And it's just, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers that are preventing us from being quick to change and, and pivoting to adapt to a changing climate. And, um, yeah, luckily <laughs> in the work that we do, we get to talk to those people every day, the people who are trying to actually change that, which is very exciting. Um, you know, but one of the things I, I wanted us to find, just kind of on a final thought, uh, when it comes to water and surface water in particular, and I'm sure you're familiar with what's happened with the Aral Sea. And I think that there are some valuable lessons when you look at the catastrophic effects of, of, prolonged like you know centuries and centuries and centuries of um you know kind of mismanaged water management surface water management and you know now we have the aral sea that is like literally there's no fish in it anymore it's a salt lake where it used to be an abundant fishery with a thriving you know kind of a a sea living um society there and um I, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with that, but what do you think some lessons that we could take from that are that we could apply to our issues here in North America? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, and I would then, I guess, reference the Ogallala Aquifer, which is going to be in a very similar state within the next 20 years. And basically, you know, that is the water tap for the breadbasket of, of the United States. And it's going to be either so salinated or dry within the next 
30 years that it's going to be rendered uh, impotent. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what we can do in that regard is, is going back to two different things, in my personal opinion. One is the heavy, you know, animal agriculture industries have, con- have, have accelerated the contamination of the waterways and, you know, the CAFO, certainly the, the confined animal feeding operations, these large feedlots where you know, you're, you don't have a, a circular system. You've got waste that's going in in high concentrations into the waterways. Uh, you also have antibiotics and steroids and hormones that are then being you know, excreted and going into the waterways, which you know, our water treatment facilities can only deal with some of those. Um, and so I would say it's a couple of different things, right? We invested in the technology that is basically a geofencing for your cows. So you can have intensive rotational grazing. Um, you can move them paddock to paddock to paddock to water and keep those paddocks fallow. So you can build that deep soil microbiology. You're sequestering carbon, greenhouse gases. You're increasing the water cycle. Um, and you're keeping those, those animals out of the waterways. Um, and so, you know, part of what is the problem with large, you know, ranch land grazing has been not delineating the waterways from the water source for the animals. And so this is where an interesting technology like vents can come in and really solve for that. Mm-hmm. Not only to take down chain, you know, fencing, electric fencing, and create wildlife corridors, migration corridors that are, again, getting back to that original biomimicry thesis, uh, but it's keeping those waterways clean. Okay, so I think technologies like that, mm-hmm. right, reduce that ag runoff into the waterways is, is first and foremost. Uh, second is making sure that the water policies are aligned so that you don't have this, you know, egregious misalignment uh, of incentives for water usage. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I love how this kind of all comes down to this design thinking process and really where we're at today to solve the toughest issues we have really globally in the world having to do with um you know, the, the interface between humans and the natural world world is going to require a high level of design thinking. And this is why I'm talking, naming our show regenerative by design. It's like, how can we overlay this regenerative holistic model of thinking to design process to, you know, piece by piece, every layer um, of interface we have to redesign them for longevity, resiliency, and sustainability. And um, it's a it's a fascinating process because it's not going to be one piece of the puzzle that gets this done. It's going to be a ripple effect across all industries and multiple categories and multiple stakeholders. And it'll be a, a colossal community effort, which is which is actually a magical thing. It's something that can really bring people together. So I love that you're you're actively working in this world every day and talking to so many different people who are doing this. So what gives you hope right now? Like, I think a lot of people have a panic, you know, a panic, a moment of panic and disenfranchisement and maybe even just completely disillusionment where they're like, we, there's nothing we can do. The world's just, you know, it's too big, it's too much, and it's too negative. Um, I, I have found that the people that I work with in my work have a high degree of hopefulness for the future and a real earnest feeling of like, there is something we can do and we're doing it. So what, what are those things that give you hope today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think there's a, an axial shift in the you know, cognitive understanding between the link of our environment, our planetary health and, and every business on this earth. 
And so I think the, the sort of awakening of, you know, the tie of your environmental footprint to your bottom line, you know, is a really powerful and, and change driving uh, sort of KPI. And so I think when I start to hear the amount of money that is coming in and looking to find a home in the space. And like you said, I get to talk to, you know, incredible folks that are thinking 10 years down the line. And I believe that one, you've got to have the capital, you know, to find these ideas, these entrepreneurs, these, these, these things that are coming out of the, you know, the academic labs that are coming out of the accelerators. Um, they need to be funded. And I, I'm, I have a great hope that that's, that's changing. And I, and I can, I can give you a lot of statistics about, you know, the actual inflows into the space and the deals that are getting done in venture capital and both ag tech and, uh, and it's really exciting. And so I have a great, I have a great hope there. I have a great hope in some of the science and understanding that we're beginning to embark on. I mean, metabologenomics, you know, when we think about these kingdoms, right, of, of bacteria, of, of fungi, of nematodal, of, you know, we know, we know 1% of what are the compounds and the phytonutrients and, and all of the chemicals in those structures. And so, you know, the discovery platforms that artificial intelligence and machine learning afford us that can outprocess, cog- you know, human cognitive mm-hmm. um, ability are yielding insights to things that are helping. And, and so, you know, we have a company called Ascribe Bioscience that has a naturally occurring microbe that is is going toe to toe with Syngenta's uh, wheat blight fungicide, and it costs ten cents on the dollar compared to what the Syngenta product does, mm-hmm. and it's the size of an acre and five hundred milligrams for an acre. Uh, wow. And there's it, it, it's all natural. That's one product that's coming out of small molecule science out of uh, Cornell that is going to change the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I also. And I'll end here because I do think this is a water important topic is, you know, we, we have a chance now to really impact the way we think about the ocean, fish protein and waterways and that integration. And, and right now we're on the precipice of bringing in, you know, RAS, which are recirculated aquaculture systems, um, and, and things like this that are basically mirroring the CAFO terrestrial animal production, industrial animal production mindset that we had, you know, starting in the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being one culture of fish, you know, highly dense yeah. in one area does this thing. It does when you put cattle in that same yeah. thing. So now you need to exactly. fill them with biotics, yeah. need hormones because they won't, and they're feeding them soy and fish meal, which is, you know, yeah. doubly bad. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we have, opportunity to move that whole space into a more sustainable space, a hybrid estuary kind of model, mm-hmm. you know, that is a poly biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those changes that can then lead to, you know, the kind of environmental and human health changes that we need to mitigate the climate crisis that's impending. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And um, water segment number two will have my uh, dear friend of mine, Dune Lankard, who is very much involved in he was a, a fisherman, Copper River Delta fisherman, and he's native EAC and now getting into regenerative seaweed 
um, agriculture in the Prince William Sound. So we're going to take a deep dive into that on our on our next water segment here in a few weeks. So um, maybe we'll have you both back down the road and we'll do a, you know, a group talk on this topic. Be really cool because, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to take, you know, action and intent and um, intentional work and framework thinking in all of the pieces you know, from the atmospheric to the seas, to the ground, to the surface waters in our rivers, all working together and repairing, you know, to really re kind of get to this new, um, new level of symbiotic existence with humans. So it's going to be an exciting journey over the next few decades. And I hope we can do it quickly enough because time's not on our side right now. So, um, thank you for talking, you know, taking the time to talk about all these great topics trip. I feel like we could do a few more hours, honestly. So I just really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know how busy you are um, to talk about this. So thank you. Where can we find you? Perfect. Like, yeah, where, where can, where can our listeners, I have a feeling that people will be like trip wall. I want to learn more about him. Um, what does he do? Where can I read and learn more? Where, where can people find information about you and what you're working on? Well, that's, that's really kind of you, Joni. I, I just really want to say thank you for putting a platform together to talk about something that, again, is, is really sort of under, and I think, under-focused on in our world and, and, and incredibly imperative that we, we talk about this and, and get everybody educated. So I, I really champion what you're doing and appreciate the, the airtime to talk. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've been on a couple of podcasts, so I've been on a podcast, so I've been on Coons, um, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. You could hear me there. And then really... You know, I do put out a monthly newsletter at trailhead.com and we, we talk about things that we're researching and interested in, but, uh, you know, would love any inbounds and to talk about any of this because I think we're all, all solving the same thing. And, and that's what I love about the, the collaboration in this space is, you know, we're working for a hundred year forward and, and everybody's kind of rowing in the same direction. So it, it feels right. profound. Right. It's an interesting concept to think of people who are not investors or working, you know, fiduciaries or people in that echelon of, of culture, because I'm not, I'm not an accredited investor. So it would never dawn on me to go, oh, I'm going to sign up for your newsletter. It's for investors, right? But you know what? I think I'm going to sign up because I, I think what you guys are working on is so interesting. It transcends the, the subject matter that just investors want to learn about. It's actually like a whole new world of regenerative and venture capital really is in the kind of thought leader position of finding the, the most exciting future forward, you know, ideas that are out there and really kind of shining a light on them. So, yeah, I haven't ever thought about that. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, that's why I'm so appreciative and grateful to be in the spot that, that I'm in, because we're talking about and thinking about ideas that are going to be coming to fruition or on the shelf, let's say in, you know, seven to 10 years. And so yeah. it really, you know, it really is being, ahead of, of how can we move the needle in a, in a really serious magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, great. Well, um, we'll post some links in the show notes for our readers to want to learn more and definitely the regenerative investment, um, podcast. And I can't remember with Coons, that's an incredible podcast. And I stumbled upon that because somebody had sent me a segment and I have gotten completely sucked into the entire series. It's incredible. I always thought it was just for investors. Again, that kind of foolish thinking of like, oh, well, if it's just for investors, it's not for me. But I have learned so much listening to that podcast and he does an incredible job. So we'll put it, we'll drop a link to that as well in the show notes. So thanks so much, Trip. It's wonderful to see you. 
Tony, great to see you too. And, uh, and everybody's an investor. You spend and invest in whatever you're doing and putting in your body all day, every day. So yeah. I, I think that blurred. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the ultimate democratization of a capital mindset there. So on that note, have a wonderful day and thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Joni. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.